Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Sierra Vista, the official podcast of the City of Sierra Vista. Once again, I'm your host, City Public Information Officer, Adam Curtis. Today, we have an economic development and local history doubleheader as we cozy up to the bar in the West End to talk about how Tombstone Brew Pub is setting up shop at the former site of Daisy Mays Steakhouse. First, we'll talk with City of Sierra Vista Economic Development Manager, Tony Boone, about how the city has been working with an ownership group that is investing in the future of Sierra Vista's West End while taking care to honor its past. We'll discuss how the Tombstone Brew Pub project fits into the city's broader effort to revitalize Sierra Vista's historic district, which is making headway on multiple fronts. Tony will also share a brief update on a, gra on a grant program providing federal relief to businesses affected by COVID-19. And he'll talk about ongoing work to prepare the Sierra Vista Municipal Airport for redevelopment. And you'll want to stick around for our second segment featuring new Mu Henry F. Hauser Museum curator, Elizabeth Rozak. Elizabeth will discuss efforts to preserve and honor the history behind the Daisy Mays building. She'll talk about donning the big shoes left behind by former museum curator, Nancy Krieski. And she will share some of her ideas for how to get the community engaged in local history. We'll also share an update on efforts to restore and celebrate the Fry Pioneer Cemetery, which just recently earned a Governor's Heritage Preservation Honor Award. As if that's not enough, we'll wrap up with a brief mailbag segment, thanking everyone who shared their thoughts on our pilot episode by emailing pod at sierravistaaz.gov. Remember to email your questions, ideas, and comments too, so you can join the conversation. All right, we're now joined by City of Sierra Vista Economic Development Manager, Tony Boone. Hi, Tony, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Adam, good morning and thanks. So by now, many folks have likely heard the news that the Tombstone Brewery is opening its second location and its first in Sierra Vista at the former site of the Daisy Mays Steakhouse. Uh, but what people often don't get to hear about are the conversations and efforts that lead to a project like this actually getting done. Um, I know you've been working with the owners of that property ever since they renovated the old Sun Canyon Inn next door. Um, can you describe how that relationship started and what role the city plays in helping facilitate uh, private investment like this? Well, right. Well, one, let me say we are very excited about it. And, and part of the excitement is both the project, but again, how much time it takes to get to the project uh, announcement. And again, we're still looking you know, to next year, probably in the spring before they're actually open. But to kind of roll it together, uh, we've worked uh, with the Ponderosa Group, uh, the owners of the Sun Canyon Inn, now the Best Western Plus, for about three years. In fact, it was one of the first businesses that came in uh, when I was newly hired. It'll be three years in July. And Time flies. I can't even believe that. I know. It's kind of <laughs> crazy, actually. Uh, my longest serving job of my career. So we'll see how that turns out. But... Um, <laughs> But at the end of the day, so we worked our way through the Best Western, uh, and then there was some discussion along the way probably about 18 months to two years ago mm -hmm. about the property next door and the impact that it would have on their investment with the, uh, with the Best Western. So we, we talked uh, and went through it, uh, provided some, some ideas for them, uh, and at that point they actually purchased the property. And then again, we, the city, partnered with them to find a, a proper tenant, in that case, they were looking at the restaurateur. I think they made an announcement on that. And we went through several iterations with uh, both the building inspector as well as the fire marshal to look at the property. Mm -hmm. They brought in additional contractors, uh, again, to try to bring that up to code uh, and resolve some safety issues, ADA compliance, and those types of things. So we, we had numerous engagements along the way. Uh, unfortunately, that, that relationship, that business relationship didn't continue. 
Uh, and then they started to work with Tombstone. Um, so we were brought in again to have some discussions uh, over time. So it's a really slow process. And again, lots of folks don't realize or, or they think it just magically happens. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, we've got a couple of years, uh, some failed projects, failed relationships uh, to try to bring us to the fruition. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, that's what we do. So it, it's been a really interesting relationship. It's popped up and really kind of confirmed it within just the last two weeks. So you work on it for 18 plus months. Uh, and then again, they finally work uh, their business arrangements, and they, they're ready to go in a couple of weeks. So uh, it's been very exciting the last, eh, probably the last two to three weeks kind of as we've gone along. So, Yeah, definitely. It seems like such a good fit to me uh, just in terms of thinking about what we would like to see in the West End, trying to create a more walkable downtown kind of entertainment-focused environment out there. Um, talk about how this project fits into the broader city plans for the West End, um, like including like the Fry Boulevard North Garden improvements we plan to make. Um, and even, you know, we've got grant programs out there. This has really been kind of a, a big focus for us. Um, well, actually, it's been a big focus for the city for decades. Um, but it, it feels like we're making some more tangible plans and putting forth a vision that business owners are starting to buy into a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah, and I think it goes back again kind of when I when I came on uh, and the city manager, you know, Chuck's guidance was to update the economic development framework. And one of the specific issues came down to the redevelopment of the West End. And, and when the staff got together and we started doing community engagement, we really came, you know, my thought was, and it's probably not written in the document, but the real bottom line or the bumper sticker to that was we've got to really change the environment to get a different result. Right. And so we've made some significant improvement. You know, the sports fields and those kinds of things are physical activities. Mm -hmm. uh, but you take that, you tie it into the redevelopment area uh, that Matt McLaughlin has been in running in the grant process to assist. And in that case, we've assisted some of these businesses that have moved in. Uh, we've done, we've got plans for park improvements uh, for both Soldier Creek and Landwehr, which are adjacent uh, to this property. Uh, we've gone forward with the garden and fry redevelopment area. You know, we've had two successful public engagements and uh, moving forward on the uh, engineering and the construction documents to kick that off next year. Uh, council approved the entertainment district. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my view, we've done all of the proactive things we can from a city's perspective to try to put some attention there and then again, that's been the discussion that we've had. So if you go back to Ponderosa Group, when we first sat down uh, with Brad and Margot Christensen, we talked about the plans. We talked about what we intended to do on Fry, what we intended to do uh, on Garden Avenue. So it's kind of fun to see it. And as you mentioned, if you look back, um, the history of decades of talking about many of these things. So I think that's the exciting part now is to actually see things physically changing, the businesses coming in, uh, the buy-in to uh, to actually put investment into the West End and really significantly change it. And and I agree with you. The the idea of a brewery, you know, when I first got here, what are we looking at? Six, seven years, seven years ago, that discussion of why don't we have a microbrewery in town? You right. Know, and it's I've come across the country and lived in many places, and it was, well, wait a minute. There's there's one in many of the cities that surround us, but why isn't it here? So we kind of put that on our on our list of things to try to find. Uh, and go through. So it's been uh, it's been fun to see it actually, you know, come to fruition than just an idea on a, on a piece of paper. Definitely. Um, and I feel like uh, with some of the other stuff going on in the West End, 
you're really starting to see some improvements on both sides a little bit. Because um, if you go down towards Carmichael Avenue and Wilcox, um, in the last issue of Vistas, uh, the feature article um, was about some some improvements going on in those areas. So obviously 143 Street Tacos moved into the old side of the Peacock next door to the food co-op. Uh, the property manager there has been involved with that property forever and it was kind of time where he needed to invest. Um, but he also saw what we were doing and saw how you know his property could fit into that. Um, and when I talked to him, he kind of expressed this hope that you know as property owners start to invest in their properties, um, it might inspire others to do the same thing. Basically kind of pulling each other up in that area and kind of putting pressure on the, the properties that you know haven't been invested in for a long time, honestly. No, absolutely. I mean, if you take that, you know, just as you mentioned from 143 Street Tacos, you know, you're heading west down Fry and then up to Garden kind of on the north edge. Mm -hmm. Those, if you look at 143 Street Tacos on one end and if you look at the potential with Tombstone Brewery, you mm -hmm. look at anchors that anchor either side of that entertainment district. And again, that's kind of the visual that we wanted, uh, the opportunity to go out. People have said, hey, there's nothing to do at night. There's no microbrewery. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been fun to watch the social media reaction, by and large, very positive. Because again, those were things that people talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and having been down uh, to see Marcelo and his crew, I mean, they've done exceedingly well. Uh, and realized that in the time that I've been in the city, that moved from a trailer uh, operation to the building and now mm -hmm. to his own building with its own unique feel. So again, you know, the idea of redevelopment is just kind of words on a slide. But mm -hmm. at this point, we're seeing, you know, real investment, significant investment in many cases, and that the business owners uh, really do see the future and, and, and are really tying it all together. Of course, we, the city, have got to finish up our part of the, the, the discussion, which goes into Garden uh, right. and Fry. And, and we're working our way through that and, and continuing to have discussions with council kind of as we go. So, Yeah, and if you go across the street from 143, if you go across Carmichael, mm -hmm. um, there's that whole um, development right there. Um, right. And I think it's owned by uh, the Polites, or is that is that the right name? Yeah, on the other side, yeah, on the Wilcox side, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, he talked to me a lot about uh, kind of their hopes for the future, too, and they are also enthusiastic about the, the Fry North Garden project mm -hmm. and kind of the opportunities it might present to them. Um, and seeing the entertainment district, seeing kind of our plan there is kind of giving them an idea of what to do. Um, and it's, it's inspired them to make some investments and, and move forward with some things too. Obviously there's some murals on the back end of the building. Which yeah, on the Bartow awesome. side, absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's a component too to, to all of this. I mean, economic development isn't just like a new business moving in, it's, it's improving the environment like you talked about, which just, it, it makes such a difference in that area. Well, and, and if you think about it in the broad scope when we, we talked, with Fort Huachuca being the economic driver, you know, at 2.8, 2.9 billion dollars, the community directly abut that abuts the fort uh, is the West End, and when people come through and see it, so whether it's murals, uh, we've got other folks that have uh, upgraded the fronts uh, of their building to clean things up. Um, you know, Marvin brought in his ice cream shop, uh, colorful and, and lively, to bring in additional attractions. So. Uh, again, as we've worked with the business owners, you know, it's their ideas, it's their thoughts. Uh, in many cases, it's their dreams. So we work with them for quite some time in some cases. Uh, we don't talk about it much, and we do that intentionally. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, to me, the government, we're not doing the capital improvements, we're not taking the risk, and we're not creating jobs. Right. You know, our job at the end of the day is to make things easier 
uh, and allow trying to facilitate these business owners. So that's why it was important for Tombstone to come out and do their announcement mm-hmm. uh, Sunday, Monday, I guess, when it was finally released. Yeah. Uh, because it's really their their project to go forward, and we're just their partner to try to help them get through. Yeah, it's interesting working in the public sector and being charged with economic development, which is such a private sector-driven activity in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, at, at sometimes you're in the opportunity to take credit for something you had very little to do with um, right. if a big business sets up shop in town or something happens, sometimes you get the blame for something you had very little to do with. (laughs) And it's frustrating because the actual work you do will create an environment or set the stage for investment, but but the actual investment may come later. Um, and there can be a disconnect in the public in terms of like, what are you doing? And, and, you know, why hasn't it happened yet? Um, but yeah, talk to me a little bit about kind of your hope for that area. Um, and, and maybe what people can expect to see, um, moving into 2021 kind of as we hope construction kicks off uh, for that uh, right. the actual street improvement project right. well, well I hope it's our vision at the yeah. end of the day and not just just up my vision at the, but uh, but again I mean I think it goes back to uh, what we did with the public engagement and and making it look uh, and again the city can only go so far so from the streets and the right-of-way the city you know that's kind of our commitment and I would say uh, for the council's commitment uh, to move forward with with Fry and North Garden, right. um, and again we've worked very hard. Uh, I'd give a you know a shout out to our fire marshal and our building official. I mean, we usually partner with them to work with these business owners as they move in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm proud to see that businesses taking ownership of their facilities and improving, and that that actually falls all the way down Fry Boulevard mm-hmm. uh, within the community. So. You know, if you go back to the base documents, it is an inviting, you know, to me it's downsized or right-sized to people. Uh, It's focused on the experience of spending some time down there, whether you're walking to Marvin's Ice Cream Shop uh, or ultimately next spring walking down uh, Garden or spending some time in Landwehr uh, or Soldier Creek Park and moving over to the Tombstone Brewery for uh, food or beverage. Uh, but just a different experience. And, and some of them are looking at the outdoors. We have some phenomenal weather. Mm-hmm. I know it's hot right now. Uh, but at the end of the day, when the sun goes down, it's a, it's a beautiful location, not too significantly hot during the day. So we, we want to see activity. And, and it's, you know, we've talked about it in the broad scope of it's kind of a throughway right now. The intent is to make it a destination. And, and if you just use the microcosm of 143 Street Tacos, that is a destination. People are driving... Um, because they like the product, they like the food, they're very impressed with the building. So if we can replicate that a couple more times, uh, I see a significant difference, uh, especially in the redevelopment, West End Entertainment District, all the different names that we've we've added to that location. Mm-hmm. And I think once that moves forward, I mean, something that we've heard so often, and I've heard since I was a reporter at the Herald, um, is so many organizations, companies, big organizations have had recruitment problems. I mean, they come bring someone to Sierra Vista, they go through Huachuca City and then the West End, and there's no like downtown, here's the heart of the city introduction where you just kind of get it right away. Um, If they spend a little more time, it grows on them. And and a lot of people really do respond to it, but you have to craft your pitch knowing that you're going to have to take a little more time um, because it's so much easier to to have that kind of downtown environment where where you really see where the community gathers and see that there's some entertainment for you and your family. Um, So I, I, I really see this as kind of a cornerstone of 
of our economic development efforts overall, and it really kind of folds into kind of a bigger strategy and hope for the future, I think. No, absolutely, and, and we've had conversations with site selectors, and, and they make the comment that if I bring the CEO or the CFO into your community to, to establish their business, and mm -hmm. I've got to drive around your town mm -hmm. to avoid neighborhoods or things that aren't very attractive, that that's not exactly uh, conducive to trying to bring people in. Uh, and you're right. We've got a lot of people that are, are transiting the, uh, the the community writ large. We've got significant investment in our youth sports or sports in general mm -hmm. uh, with our sports fields. Obviously, COVID-19 has had some significant impacts uh, this spring. Uh, but again, that if you tie it all together, the intent is to bring additional people from across the state and, and potentially the region uh, to experience Sierra Vista as it is. Uh, again, people don't necessarily, they have a preconceived notion, and, and I'm not going to go through all the negatives because there's plenty of them out there. Uh, but with my experience, uh, whether it was the mountain bike race on post uh, or some of the conferences when we brought additional people in, they get here and they get it. And by bringing additional folks in uh, to spend some time, whether it's for their youth sports, uh, a conference, uh, or they're staying here and actually taking in all of the wonderful things that you can find across Cochise County, uh, eventually one of those entrepreneurs uh, or business owners may perhaps come back down. And I think it becomes even more important as we talk about what are the, the long-term implications of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. You know, the, this great workforce uh, across the nation has been sent home. Many people that if you ask them six months ago, can you work at home, they would have said, no, I can't work at home. My boss won't let me. Right. Amazingly enough now, <laughs> you can work there. And, you know, you're seeing people buy RVs. You're seeing people flee large cities. Uh, and they've got very good jobs. They just need connectivity to do what they need to do. And, you know, we've been kicking around here. If you can work from anywhere, why aren't you working from Sierra Vista? Right. Um, so we've been working, actually, it's with your office to, to kind of work through that message and see where we can go with that uh, to bring in workforce uh, that will bring in good jobs, uh, support, and for folks that really like, uh, I'd say, a smaller city, a smaller community, uh, but want to take advantage of the weather, the mountains, uh, the hiking, biking, uh, and kind of the, you know, I don't know how to describe it, the, the, the feel that we have, I would say, between Sierra Vista and Cochise County. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting how COVID has flipped so much on its head, but looking through that lens now, there there are opportunities there too. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like we're just stopping work or just staying home. I mean, there's been significant progress by business owners. They're taking this time to kind of make improvements and investments. And as the city, we really are looking at different strategies. When when people may be traveling less for tourism a little bit, I mean, that teleworking mar market could be really something to pursue. Um, so it's been an interesting kind of pivot uh, for a lot of folks to make, but I do think like you talked about, Sierra Vista has some unique opportunities there too. Um, but while we're talking about COVID, obviously local businesses are struggling um, and everywhere businesses are struggling. Um, and with COVID cases on the rise, I mean, we're not through the woods yet. Um, there's gonna be more pain before things get better. Um, but we were able to uh, you know, work through the federal government and kind of channel some federal dollars here um, which has been a fun process for you to work through. <laughs> um, I've so, learned a lot. Yeah, so we're, we're near the point where we're, we're actually get able to, you know, move some money into some folks' hands right. here soon. But uh, talk about that, that grant process, kind of where we're at now, um, and, you know, how, how that's been to work through. So the city, uh, well, each year we receive community development block grant funding. Mm -hmm. In this case, with the CARES Act, they provided, I think it was just under one hundred sixty, one hundred fifty nine thousand dollars 
Uh, and then we took it to the mayor and council, and they made the decision to split it. Uh, and they put uh, roughly 120000 in the small business grants or microenterprise side. Mm-hmm. And then the balance of that went uh, to the United Way for social services and, and those types of things. So, yeah, so we, we got to pull and figure out how we would run a microenterprise or a small business uh, loan proposition or actually a grant. Uh, and, and, again, we reached out across the state. We looked into uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin. Actually, they were very helpful. I'm not sure they're listening, but, uh, but their, <laughs> their crew, was. Uh, they've shared all their documents, all their planning, uh, and they were exceedingly helpful. So uh, with the approval and the guidance of the mayor and council, we as staff kind of took off. And the intent was to get things moving and get things out fast, which when you deal with federal money and federal government, having spent 25 years with the federal government, it, it's kind of contradictory, but we, we kind of worked our way through it as, as we went. So ultimately, we pulled in, just to throw some numbers out, we, we reviewed 24 uh, businesses in the local community uh, through the grant process. Uh, we had about 14 that didn't qualify, so somewhere around 38 to 40 that, that had some interest along the way. In many cases, they were in the county. Uh, I had a phone call from a business owner in Douglas I received a phone call from Tucson because they picked up the story on Kega 9. My favorite was uh, a city employee from Mesa who's working their project, has a friend that has a business, and called me to find out if we were doing something. Uh, as you can imagine, Mesa, their numbers were significantly larger than 120,000. But, right. <laughs> but at the end of the day, and we're kind of in the, I call it the home stretch, if we can figure out the administration, we still don't have the federal dollar, so we're working our way to find city dollars so we can get those into the hands of the business owners sooner rather than later. Uh, but we ended up with nine qualified microenterprises. So, again, when we say small, we mean real small. Uh, in this case, microenterprise is a, uh, an owner and no more than four employees, and they've got to meet the low to moderate income standard depending on how many folks are in their home. So we ended up with nine of those uh, to the tune of roughly $7,500 a piece uh, to try to bridge them out. The intent is not to make them whole. Uh, But at the end of the day, as things are starting to reopen, I know there's some counter action with COVID increasing, but as these businesses are reopening, how how can we provide that to help? And then if a business didn't qualify in that category, we looked at them under a special economic development grant. And that one was the fun one because we literally built the airplane in flight. Um, The microenterprise is very well based in CDBG. Uh, And we ended up with two. uh, And again, they were looking at five or more employees or the business owner didn't qualify for low to moderate income. So mm-hmm. those, the two that we have approved have committed to maintaining two jobs into the future that are low to moderate income. So mm-hmm. there's four jobs tied to that. I haven't gone back to look. Uh, in many cases, our micro enterprises are husband and wife mm-hmm. or a family member. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I kind of looked at it, all of it, and, and unfortunately – Seven of our businesses that we were considering receive PPP uh, or Paycheck Protection. What's the last P? I always forget live. But the PPP program. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, there was some duplication. And we made the decision that we really wanted to funnel the money to the small businesses that had received no other federal help. And and that's been fun. I got to meet uh, the business owners as we've been going back and through with the applications. Uh, and they're thanking me, and of course, I'm, I'm just the, the guy trying to pull this thing together. But, but very appreciative in, in trying to reopen their businesses or reset their businesses as they go forward. Uh, so at the end of the day, you know, we helped, you know, directly 11 or so of those businesses. Um, 
it was good to see that the small businesses were finally getting PPP, and that mm-hmm. was a big issue up front. Yeah. Uh, we literally, you know, and I say we lost out of our grant program. We had someone receive PPP right at the last minute uh, that we were considering. So uh, it's been good. I think we're going to have to have another conversation with the mayor and council about uh, the balance of the money. What what do we do with it, and, and kind of where the social programs are going to go? But uh, I appreciate kind of the the vision. Uh, of the mayor and council to try to go after that. It's been, again, personally, it's been a fun experience to learn the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we've got to be audit ready and all the other bureaucratic fun things that come with it. So uh, as I told the businesses, I look forward to reaching out to them in a couple of months to say, hey, what, what did you do with the money in general terms? Are you still here with us? Are you still working? Is the business still moving forward? And at the end of the day, that's, that's really what we're after. We're after keeping the businesses that are here, keeping them functional, keeping the business, uh, the jobs that they've already got. So, uh, again, it's been an interesting experience. It's taken a little bit of time, uh, but uh, but well worth the effort uh, to to work with these eleven businesses. Right, and while it's taken a bit of time, I mean, it, it's important to say our our council really did move as quickly as they could. They saw the urgency and they wanted to get assistance to businesses as quick as possible. And you mentioned Matt uh, previously, but our, our community development director, and and you really worked this as quickly as we could. And I mean, it's a federal bureaucracy. There's a lot of, you know, checks to mark and make sure you're doing everything appropriately. Um, but yeah, it, it's really, as a city throughout the organization, we've recognized a sense of urgency and have, have tried to, to move this forward as fast as we can. And as you mentioned, we still don't have the federal dollars, but we're looking at you know using city dollars and getting reimbursed potentially um, just to ensure we can get that money where it needs to go to, to help these folks. Yeah, so we're, I mean, if I can get through the last kind of last couple stages, we're hoping to have checks cut late Thursday afternoon. So hopefully by Monday, uh, these businesses will have the, the grant money in their accounts to pay their utilities, pay their leases, uh, cover their employees, or buy some of the additional PPE that they may need to uh, to protect their clients as they come into their businesses. So, so yeah, so we're going to move some money, and hopefully by Monday it's in their hands if we can get through the last hurdle or two. And um, and again, yeah, that that came from our city manager to, to say, hey, look, we want to we want to get this money out, and and we'll work it from a reimbursable perspective. Uh, because unfortunately, again, if you wait on the federal government, things can take um, a little longer than most of us would care for. Right. So something else that has been a long-term project and something uh, you kind of inherited uh, when you took this job, uh, we were kind of in the process of doing a, um, I believe, a grant-funded study over at the mm-hmm. Sierra Municipal Airport. And you've really dived into that project. And, and we're, we're kind of exploring, you know, how can we prepare this for redevelopment? And how can we really set the groundwork needed to spur some private investment mm-hmm. in there? And what would work out there? Um, so maybe if you could just talk a little bit about uh, where that's at right now um, and ultimately what vision you have uh, for the airport. Right. So if you look, you're, you're right. So as I came on, there was a uh, airport study that had been funded by the Office of Economic Adjustment. Mm-hmm. So we had that, and it was moving kind of as we go forward. Um, but, but to take a step back, the, the real reason, and I think for people that, that are listening, you know, why are you playing with dirt at the airport? I mean, because it kind of comes off that way as a very simple thing. If you look around from the city's perspective, we don't have a ton of commercial or light industrial or heavy industrial within the city limits proper. Uh, So again, if you don't have the land or the building, you can't place a business. I mean, it's just a simple process. Uh, And as the Commerce Authority, or as we talk to uh, other businesses that come in, if you don't have the facilities ready to go, I'm I'm just going to look right past you and move forward. 
The other one is to find uh, unique assets that Sierra Vista would have compared to other cities or other locations across either the Southwest or across the nation as a whole. And you start digging, and, and I've looked, uh, we've got the th with access in the, the joint use airport, we've got access to the third or the second, I can't remember now, the second, no, it's the third longest runway, 12,001 feet. Mm -hmm. In short, what does that allow you to do? You can literally land any aircraft that is currently flying. Uh, Including the space shuttle, yes. which is not currently flying, I guess. No, but. I guess not. <laughs> no, and we always talk about it, but it never actually showed up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which was good, because we were actually just a backup along the way. But so trying to find a unique asset uh, along the way. So we've got roughly 13 acres of undeveloped land uh, that's the city was deeded from Fort Huachuca. Uh, as we've talked about, they have put some additional material there, uh, the Grand Mountain. Uh, so really what this what this plan is and where we're at, uh, in fact, in about, well, by the end of the month, we're expected to receive both the engineering and the construction documents to take the mountain, to take that 13 acres and truly prepare it uh, for buildings. And the intent is to maximize the 13 acres. Since we don't have a ton of land, we want to be as frugal as we can and get as many things uh, moved into there. And... Uh, moving forward, so just to put this in perspective for the folks that are listening, uh, the current construction plans put it at about $810,000 uh, to do all of that preparation, and you're going to say that's a lot of money. And, and the answer to that question is absolutely. Um, and the trick to this is we need to prepare the land so that we can go and talk to an aviation-related user. Um, again, I go back to large aircraft, large things because of, uh, because of the runway. Mm -hmm. But if we do that, we can demonstrate our commitment to bring them in. So what that does is, is eliminates the time. And as we've, you know, I think I've talked before, you know, it may take a company two to three years to figure out where they want to move and where they want to go. But we'll, when they finally make that decision, they want to be operational in under 12 months because yeah. time is money. So they may spend multiple years studying. So what that does is now puts this piece of property and allows us to go market it. And it demonstrates that the city is committed to that. So it could be uh, manufacturing. It could be retrofit uh, on the aviation side. It could be large UAS. It, it could be many of those things. So that's kind of where we're at with the intent that we'll take this uh, construction documents that we receive in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're still waiting for final approval uh, by the mayor and council on budget. And we'll see based on that. And we're also pursuing uh, an additional... Uh, additional federal grant that may assist us with that. So if you think steps we've planned, the next step would be to do. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece, as we are doing, we want to start doing the advertising. Uh, and it's going to be very targeted. I mean, this isn't we're just going to throw out advertising. We need it to be aviation related. Mm -hmm. I've got several companies in mind that may potentially uh, need requirements. Uh, this, the other part is we've got to see how COVID-19 impacted the market, of course, uh, because if you go back to January, February, there was lots of folks in large aviation, and there's been significant challenges, I guess I would say, uh, from Boeing on down. So we've got to see how that market plays itself out. Uh, but but the ultimate goal of that would be to bring in uh, a couple of businesses again, 13 acres to be selective, for aviation related high paying jobs and a separate industry line from Fort Huachuca. Uh, it may be it may be the commercialization of a military aircraft, uh, but again, it would be tied to um, a, a different job, a different set. So, again, trying to play to our our workforce, 
Uh, Fort Huachuca's got a, a tremendous UAS workforce. Cochise College has aviation maintenance. We've got land, we've got phenomenal weather, and we've got access to a very long runway. So that's, that's kind of the behind the scenes of why we pick that target, uh, and that's why we're working our way through that. All right, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really an example of, you know, there's so much work that goes into something, and you may not see the tangible results until years down the road, frankly. Right, uh, I mean, this may be a, f I mean, realistically, before even a job, it could be mm -hmm. a five or six year project just to, you know, before you cut the ribbon and invite the governor. Uh, I mean, it literally could be that long, so. Yeah, so we look forward to the payoff, and, <laughs> and we'll get there someday. Um, but it's been interesting for me, like, amid the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I mean, we put out the Vista's newsletter, so I ended up talking to some of these business owners in the West End and seeing what's going on. Even as many of us were in the stay home, you know, kind of phase, you know, this beautiful hummingbird mural was created in the West End, um, and then all these other improvements started to kind of take place there too. Um, and just like, you know, over there in the private sector, I mean, here at the city, we're still at work too. We're still trying to navigate this. We're looking at opportunities. We're looking at how our plans may to be, need to be tweaked or adjusted. Um, and I do think in the near term, I mean, we're going to have some more pain. I mean, COVID is on the mm -hmm. rise. We know we're going to have to try to navigate this wave and see what it does, see, see how we get through to the other side. Um, but I just want to kind of gauge your sense of, you know, where the community is heading at this kind of uncertain and difficult time for so many people. Um, I'm just wondering, do you see some, some reason to be optimistic about the community's future, you know, past these kind of short-term struggles we're going to have to go through? Yeah, I mean, we, one, we have to acknowledge that there have been some tough times. Mm -hmm. um, one, people are ill, uh, people have died, and we've had some significant challenges with the businesses. I mean, we, we need to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. But what I would offer to you is uh, the positives that I've seen is, has been many businesses taking some really innovative approaches on what their business model looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, and they took it as a challenge and they've, you know, whether it was, uh, placing different, uh, sales pitches, uh, people meeting people at the door, selling different things, maybe they're somewhat related. Uh, but again, really trying to, to line up their business and see where they could go. Uh, maybe they went after some different clients kind of as they've gone along. Um, but, but I do say, I mean, I am generally very positive about it. And I, and I say that because, the goodness of having Fort Huachuca and the economic driver here, and, and I know there's some woes at times, and we can go back and look at history on that one, but between the soldiers, the Department of the Army civilians, the contract workforce have been continuing to get paid and continuing to work. Again, they may be working from home. Uh, we've got folks, you know, there's classified networks and there's some unique things that happen up there from a technology perspective. Um, but, but on the positive side, they've continued to go uh, and continue to work. Uh, we've seen the housing market stay fairly solid. Uh, you know, the inventories are still down, prices are up. Uh, we see the last of the infill projects that are going on out on BST and Coronado still continuing to happen. We've talked about the opportunities for telework, and I think that would apply to both the city staff as well as our business owners. Do you necessarily need large offices and brick and mortar spaces, perhaps? Is mm -hmm. it cheaper to run your operation with your employees only coming in once a week? Uh, do you care where your employees work at all? And some national companies have really made a significant effort to find workforce that says, look, I don't care where you're from or where you're at. Um, you know, interviews on Zoom, I mean, the, the whole idea of shaking hands and walking to an office, that, that forever may have changed too. 
And then as we've already talked about, this whole fleeing of the, the major metro areas where you've got large concentrations of people in traffic, I, I think Sierra Vista clearly isn't a place to do that. And, and you know, anecdotally, one phone call, uh, a gentleman had been looking on where he was choosing to go and ended up with Sedona and Sierra Vista. His words, not mine. That's how in his study. Uh, and quite frankly, the cost of living and the available homes in Sedona kind of outpriced him. And he had some questions and concerns as he, as he moved forward. So, no, I, I think I am optimistic. And, and again, you know, you know, we talk about social distancing and, and we've got wide open spaces mm -hmm. and the opportunity for both the city. You know, and I think I've left Cochise County once uh, <laughs> since this thing kicked in March. Yeah. Uh, it was one very quick trip to Tucson and back. Uh, but again, the opportunities to spend time outdoors, the opportunities to think about your business, think about how you approach it, and maybe there's some additional ways to, to, to go about how you how you do your business. Um, so, yeah, I guess realistically, I'm I'm you know I'm not an overly optimistic person. I spent most of my life being a realist, but but I think the business owners that have really taken the challenge on and really modified their businesses in some way, some cases radically, uh, I think they will be better uh, better served at the end. Uh, and if you just go back and use something like a, a, the Tombstone Brewery, which is kind of where we started, they have the optimism to continue to working through that project despite COVID-19. Mm -hmm. It may have slowed them down. Uh, and we've got some other projects in the works across the city. And again, I would say they've slowed down perhaps, uh, but at the end of the day, they're still looking to move forward. So uh, again, I think we live in a, an extraordinary community. I think we've got tremendous people, tremendous potential. Uh, and and I, again, we're not going to see massive growth. I mean, we're not going to see swings. Uh, but I think we're positioned well to do uh, reasonable growth, uh, responsible growth kind of as we go forward. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I do hope that that is something that comes out of this pandemic is, is as we're able to emerge on the other side, I hope we do come out of it a little stronger. And, and business-wise, city-wise, I mean, it's, it's forcing us all to think a little differently to, to navigate this new world a, a little bit. And I think we'll learn some positive skills and some positive things out of that. And, and I hope that does really kind of result in some benefits too. Um, but it's, it's going to be a tough time right now, and we understand that as well. Um, so. Uh, you and Mike are obviously always available to talk to folks um, and to work with local businesses. So if there is someone that's just, you know, struggling with, with something, it doesn't have to be COVID related. It could be anything. But particularly during these difficult times, a lot of folks may just need someone to talk to, to talk about ideas and ways to deal with stuff. Yep. Um, how can folks get in touch with you? Uh, probably email and phone or? Yeah, email and phone. If you look at the, the website, all of our stuff mm -hmm. is out there, uh, as well as our pictures, uh, if you'd like to go forward. But but yeah, email address is pretty simple. It's Tony, T-O-N-Y dot Boone, B-O-O-N-E, at sierravistaaz.gov. Um, but again, and, and that's an easy way to get a hold of us. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we had a gentleman stop by with an idea yesterday for a business. So the ideas haven't stopped. Uh, and Mike, part of his title is ombudsman. Mm -hmm. So what that would mean is for any of our businesses in the city, if there's challenges that they've got, uh, questions, concerns, if they're trying to work through the permitting process, uh, that's what we're here for, and, and quite frankly, our time is being paid um, by the citizens of Sierra Vista. So our job is to um, help businesses navigate, and, and as you say, some of the business owners that we've de you know developed a pretty significant relationship like to come in and bounce ideas off. Mm -hmm. um, so again, we're here to do that, and then we'll also send you off to some of the other professionals in our community, whether it's uh, the Small Business Development Center, the Arizona Regional Economic Development Foundation, uh, our, our chambers. Again, those 
all of us offer a, a little different piece of the pie. Um, but at the end of the day, we all want service to be better. We want the businesses to be successful. Um, and we really, you know, I, I think there's an interesting inflection point for us. Uh, and again, I know some people are, are dealing with some challenges, uh, and they may, may, you know, may not be able to see it at this point. But uh, kind of, a, I think, as a community, if we move forward, and again, to tie it back to the framework, that whole idea of changing the environment. And, and when I say that, you know, we talked about the physical environment, the virtual environment, and even the perceived environment. What's the perception, uh, good, bad, or indifferent of Cervist, and how do we make that move forward? So, uh, again, uh, a tough spring into, uh, into a tough summer, probably not where people thought they would be. And certainly if you asked me back in January uh, when things were moving very quickly. Uh, but, again, uh, we've got to roll with the punches, and I think our community is resilient enough to do that. Absolutely, I do too, and, and maybe we'll have you back in a few months to, to see what the world look, looks like then and get an update on some of this, uh, but that's all I've got for you today. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been great, um, and uh, we'll probably have you on again before too long. Well, thank you very much. Now we're joined by new Henry F. Hauser Museum curator, Elizabeth Rozak. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. All right, so recently I know you and Sierra Vista Historical Society President uh, Tim Doyle had the opportunity to walk through the Daisy Mays building. Um, I was also there kind of tagging along, um, and it was really kind of interesting to see the state of the building. Um, also kind of sad to see a little bit, um, but I was really kind of happy we had the opportunity to go, go in there. And basically you guys were looking at what could be kind of salvaged to uh, honor the site's history. Um, so can you talk about what that experience was like for you uh, and what role this building plays in our local history? Yes, well, it was a really kind of surreal experience. I have never been in the building, but I'd heard a lot about its history. Um, but before I even go into that, let me just say um, I'm so appreciative to Brad Christensen, who owns the property, who I know put a lot of effort into um, looking to preserve that building. It wasn't feasible in the end, and going in there, you could see that it was falling down, the floors ripped out, there's a lot of places where plywood were laid down so you didn't fall through the floor. So, um, you know, it really wasn't something that they could do, but it was so nice of him to invite us in there and to offer to give us some of the different artifacts, and really, he was so generous saying, you know, take whatever you want. So going through there, um, it was just, you know, it's crazy. It's our oldest building. It was built in 1905. Um, some people don't know this. It was originally built as a saloon, uh, dance hall, and brothel. And uh, this red light district grew outside of it. And it ended up becoming this building that served um, our community in a lot of good ways. It became a post office and general store. The name of the settlement changed with who ran it. It was Overton at first. And then when the Carmichaels took over, it became Garden Canyon. And then it ended up serving us as a trading post and becoming, um, you know, steakhouses later, and most recently Daisy Mays. And it's really an iconic building for this community, and a shame that we have to lose it. But again, like I said, it really wasn't feasible. So I'm really excited with the new business coming in and the efforts to revitalize that area, because I think we'll still be able to really highlight the history in that area, even without the building, especially with the um, new ownership. Right, yeah, so talk a little bit about uh, what you were able to get um, and kind of how you hope to incorporate uh, that uh, actually into the Henry F. Hauser Museum uh, so we can kind of invite community members to kind of celebrate that history and learn a little bit more about it. Yes, well, we um, some things we're getting are original. 
So um, Mr. Christensen did have the demolition crew. They're going to try to salvage part of the original adobe wall, which oh, cool. is, yes, which is, you yeah. know, that's really nice to have a piece of the actual architecture of the original building. Mm -hmm. um, he also allowed me to bring a city crew in to um, cut part of what we believe is the original bar, and I'm doing research on bars of that era to be able to try and date it and make sure. But oh, cool. I was actually wondering about that. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we believe that it is, um, with our historic records that we have, that it is the original bar from when it was a saloon, dance hall, and brothel. So we cut off a portion of that, which is currently in the museum in a uh, display that's under construction right now that we're working on. And we were able to get some other things, too, from different eras. So we got some um, wall sconces, which were post-1906, but I haven't been able to date those yet either, so very new. Uh -huh. um, we got an old spittoon, which wasn't original to the original time period. It was one of those like mid-century reproductions when people were really kind of in love and romanticizing the Old West and recreating items to be able to, you know, incorporate that. And so even though it's not original to that, it still, you know, kind of shows part of our history also and the history of the building and honoring that kind of original um, use. And so we got um we also got some old carriage lights, we got a bar stool, um, and oh, and we've got a, one of the old Daisy May stronghold signs, so that's always fun too, to have that, you know, what it was last. And so we're gonna incorporate that incorporate that into a little display within our larger exhibit, which is still about the Fry Pioneer Cemetery. And we're going to highlight kind of the history of the building within the community. But also, I want to look at a part of our history that is a little more troubling and that we haven't really addressed as much, especially when it comes to that building. And that's, um, you know, an early community that was plagued by uh, prostitution, bootlegging, and violence. So along with these artifacts that we got from the old Daisy May building, we're also going to have available over 100 documents that we have that are related to prostitution, violence, and bootlegging in the red light district that grew up around that original um, saloon and brothel and in the area that is now North Garden Avenue. That's kind of interesting because um, if you're not familiar with the area, obviously everyone's familiar with Tombstone. And, and those are some things that you think of when you think of Tombstone. You think of gunfights, you think of that kind of potential red light district, you just think of those kinds of ideas of the Old West. Um, but so many people have no idea that kind of stuff happened in Sierra Vista. Um, and particularly that our community, that was kind of the start of it, just coming right outside the main gates of Fort Huachuca. Um, that was the times, and that, that, that was kind of the nature of what happened off post in that kind of area at those times. Um, so it's a fascinating part of our history, and I also think it kind of meshes with the Tombstone theme and kind of the brand of Matt Brown's business. Uh, so Matt Brown's owner of the Tombstone Brewing Company, uh, and he was also there when we did our walkthrough uh, and kind of talked about his take on, on history, and he seemed very supportive of kind of integrating the story of the site into his plans for his building and his tombstone brew pub. Um, and he did share a story about how he had actually researched a yeast from the 1800s that was used to make beer that he somehow replicated or recovered and is now producing a beer uh, made from that yeast to kind of give us a sense of that kind of historic 
what they were drinking at that time, you know, um, which is just a really different and unique kind of window into that period, which I thought was really cool. Uh, so I wanted to kind of hear your take on kind of talking with Matt about that. And I mean, do you feel like this is just like a really good fit character wise for that site too? It just seemed to kind of mesh to me. Oh, absolutely. Matt was so wonderful to talk to. Mm. Um, his mother-in-law is actually a historian and archaeologist and a friend of mine, which I did not know when I first met him until he said, oh, you might know Becky Roscoe, my mother-in-law. Oh, so that's now awesome. We have, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and so now we already have a date to have a beer there when it opens in the spring. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I really love that he likes to incorporate that kind of really authentic historical um, aspect into his brewing. And then also he's been just so um, ready and open to incorporating our local history into there too. And he wants to, I think, look at you know, the building and incorporate some of you know, its prominence in the community into there. And then to also talk with um, some different people and incorporate some of the Buffalo Soldier history in there as well, which I think is just really wonderful because that really defines our community as well. And yeah, I'm really excited. I think he's going to be a great fit. I love that we're getting a microbrewery. Honestly, mm -hmm. if um, <laughs> if the building had to be replaced with anything, you're combining two of my favorite things: history and beer. So yeah. it seems like a great pairing to me. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, he's been really great um, talking about just different ways that we can incorporate it, whether it's your signage on the outside, or I've offered him some different images that we have in the museum and some different ideas to how to incorporate the local history within the interior kind of aesthetic. So we're gonna be uh, speaking about that moving forward, but of course the building's not even built yet, so right. that'll, that'll wait a little while, but I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm sure we all can't wait to see how that turns out. It'll be really exciting for that area. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, you were recently hired as curator of the Henry F. Hauser Museum, uh, and obviously you're replacing um, Nancy Krieski, who was in that position for about 15 years and basically created the museum as it is today. I mean, she was described as the guiding light behind the historical society, too. I mean, she just influenced so much when it comes to appreciating, gathering, recognizing, sharing our local history. Um, so I know you did work as a volunteer um, prior to taking on this position. I believe there was a move in there too. Um, but yeah, talk about how you got interested in Sierra Vista history. Um, and then, you know, what was the opportunity like to, to get to work with Nancy when she was curator? Well, Nancy was amazing. She was an amazing mentor. She has become a really important friend to me. Um, and I originally met her, I actually wandered into the Ethel Berger Center looking for something else. And I looked over and I was like, oh, there's a museum. And I was going back to finish my uh, bachelor's degree in history. And so I talked to Nancy and she said, yeah, come volunteer. And she's so wonderful. And she really showed me um, all kinds of different aspects from the really like curatorial side of, you know, making sure that you know past perfect database and being able to really catalog and look at the items and research their history and how to store them correctly and preserve them, to also letting me um, really get involved in a lot of different programs. And I got involved with the Sierra Vista Historical Society through her also, where I had um, a bunch of great opportunities there as well. So um, that went on for about three years until I had to move. I finished my degree and moved to Savannah, where I worked at the Georgia Historical Society, which gave me a completely different kind of experience. It was a lot bigger. Their archives are amazing. They have early drafts of the Constitution and oh, Lafayette wow. Sword and the grape shot that killed Count Pulaski. And so I really got to gain this new different experience too so that when we came back, I feel like not only did I know a lot about the museum and 
the local history that's so in interesting here in this you know, southwest city that grew up around an army base, mm -hmm. but also that I was able to bring back some you know, different and new perspectives. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, talking about that, uh, what kind of initial plans or ideas for you have, uh, do you have for the museum moving forward? I will preface by saying you're kind of brand new in the position and there's a lot going on right now with COVID and other stuff and uncertainty, but I do imagine you're working on some ideas that you would like to implement at some point in the future. So talk about kind of your approach. Yes, well, um, Everything is crazy right now with COVID, but that's kind of given me an opportunity at the museum to really be able to acclimate myself and have some time before rushing into things. So one of the things that I'm concentrating on right now with my assistant, Stephanie, is to work on creating lesson plans and um, educational resources for teachers. So when my son was in third grade, I talked to his teacher, and that's where Arizona history is taught now, it's in third grade, which is a relatively recent development. And she was saying how they don't have a lot of resources. So one of our main um, priorities right now is to start creating lesson plans for teachers that they'll be able to access online. So especially in the event that COVID continues to impact our school systems and we perhaps have to do distance learning again, I'm hoping to be able to have some of these lesson plans as PowerPoints online where teachers can access them, share screen on Zoom, and be able to talk about our history. And these are gonna draw from our collection specifically, mm -hmm. but are gonna talk about our experience here within the greater context of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten um, the state standards for third grade social studies, so they will all be in alignment with that. We're really hoping to lead the way in the county in providing these educational resources for our teachers because it's so important and they already have a tough enough job. So that's one of our first priorities. I also want to really reach out to different demographics um, within the museum as well. We have a really great group of patrons who are fantastic. We wanna to continue to serve them. They're, you know, they're a little older. We also wanna to start to bring some younger people in as well. So I also wanna do some different programming that's gonna to touch on things that younger groups are more prone to be interested in and find um, intriguing. Mm -hmm. So we wanna look at that and talk about um, some underrepresented groups a little more that aren't as representative, especially in smaller museums because mm -hmm. that's harder to do. You have a smaller collection. Mm -hmm. And we want to um, just look at more some social movements and to look at history and how it really connects to today because that's something that is so important when you're talking about using a museum as education. It's not just look about looking at how things were but how things have been shaped over time and how they affect what is going on in the present day. So I really wanna work on that as well. That sounds awesome. And uh, as a former schools reporter, as the schools reporter for six years at the Service to Herald, I know how busy teachers are and how crazy it can get. So I'm sure they appreciate uh, it being aligned to the standards and being something they can implement hopefully rather easily. Nothing seems easy when you're dealing with schools and rules and curriculums and stuff. Um, but I really love the idea of, you know, at a really young age, reinforcing that history isn't just this thing in a textbook about this other place or about your country as a whole or about something that you're kind of disconnected from. Um, like really connecting that story to the local community um, is something that a lot of kids don't get the opportunity to, to see, you know, and, and maybe that's a way to build interest at a younger age too and appreciation um, for their local history, I don't know. 
Right, and that's one thing we really want to do, and especially, yeah, to look at your community. It makes it more interesting. So one of the lesson plans that Stephanie's working on right now is about the migration of people to the area. And our community is made up of a lot of different early pioneers and immigrants. So you have people who immigrated to the United States from Ireland or France and came across, you know, that westward expansion manifest destiny. We had those pioneers, of course, too. We had ones who just came from other states, like the Fries, who came from Texas, uh, Margaret Carmichael, who came from Tacoma, Washington. We have an old conquistador kind of family. They were Spaniards, you know, the great, 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 great grandfather was uh, with the Spanish army when they very early came up through this area and then was given land to settle on. We have an oral history for their family. So we wanna look at that. We have um, a lot of people from Hispanic and Yaqui Indian descent who came up early in the base's history and began doing woodworking in the canyons. And then of course we have the Buffalo soldiers who came out here specifically to fight in the Indian Wars and to watch the border. So we have all these really interesting groups of people who migrated into this area for different reasons with different push and pull factors that brought them here and that built this community with, that really has a lot of multicultural roots. So I mean those are you know, some of the things that we wanna talk about and that align with the standards. So how that fits into greater migrations and what's going on in Arizona. Definitely, yeah, some of what you talked about I actually didn't really think about or really come to realize the impact of until uh, we started to work on the Fry Pioneer Cemetery. Um, and so, long story short, Sierra Vista Historical Society, the city of Sierra Vista, and a team of very dedicated volunteers um, have been working to restore and also kind of expand and celebrate uh, the Fry Pioneer Cemetery. Um, it's actually a National Historic Landmark that just turned 100 years old and was featured in uh, the previous, and I guess current, actually, Henry F. Hauser Museum exhibit, technically. Um, and uh, we also uh, garnered a uh, 2020 Governor's Heritage Preservation Honor Award uh, for those efforts, which is really, really awesome. Um, but yeah, one of the things that you talked about that I learned um, through going out there and actually talking to the folks who were marking these additional graves outside of the Fry family plot um, is that there were a lot of Hispanic and Yaqui uh, Indians or Native Americans who um, were involved in woodworking, doing other stuff, and, and the Fry family actually allowed them to be buried um, at that site. Um, and now for the you know, first time in recent history, we're, we're marking, we've got those graves marked, we're kind of honoring that legacy as well, and really expanding the story of that site beyond just the Fry family, um, which I think is just so cool. Um, so if you could uh, just talk a little bit about uh, that project and why it's important to our community. Um, and I do know, you know, efforts are ongoing, so maybe update kind of where they're at right now. Yes, well, I mean, first I think it's really important, the cemetery had been closed for I think almost a decade. And so I think it's important to give people a place to, you know, to let people be able to access those sites because we still have a lot of descendants in the area who have, you know, family buried there and who want to be able to come and visit those grave sites. And so I think it was really important also to be able to mark them and say, here's where they are because some of that information is lost over time. So that was really important to our community just in that aspect. But then I th also think, you know, especially with what Nancy had done with the exhibit, what she worked with the, with the Historical Society and providing educational programming around the people buried outside the walls was so important because most of our research had been concentrated priorly on the Fry family and this pioneer you know, family that came here and built the original family plot and cemetery. 
But it's also really important to look at our multicultural roots and to look at all of the people buried outside the wall because they were just as big of a part of building this community as the Fries were. And so I really loved how Nancy highlighted them within the exhibit and then along with educational programming that went with that done by um, Paulette Doyle, mm -hmm. who did an extensive amount of research to look at the experiences of Yaqui Native Americans in Mexico and the push factors that led them here. And then also to look specifically at the different people and do genealogical research to find out who they were, where exactly they came from. And um, so, I mean, that was that's really important to our community as well, is to look at more underrepresented groups that I've, I've said before. Yeah, and it was cool for me to see, um, I think his name is uh, Nacho Valenzuela. Yes. Uh, and his family uh, were actually involved in marking uh, the graves outside those walls, and they're actually marking graves of their ancestors and family members. Um, and Nacho originally uh, was was the one kind of responsible for, I believe, marking those graves, or like he helped recover the locations of those sites. He kind of had a map of where everyone uh, had been plotted, more or less. Um, so it was cool to see him, his story kind of come full circle in a way. Yes, and um, it was him and his uncle, Eugene Moreno Jr., mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they had been involved in burying some people out there and had just been around so long in the area and knew so many people out there. They're the ones who actually created the map and the list. Right. Like yeah. from memory, from talking to people. And they were, that's the entire, without that, I mean, we couldn't have done anything. So really the preservation is all made possible by Nacho, who is just tremendous to talk to. We've got a few of his oral histories at the, um, museum as well, where he talks about his early experiences as a child on Fort Huachuca with his father working out there. And it's a really interesting man. Oh, that's really neat. Um, so yeah, talk a little bit about uh, where we're at right now with the restor restoration efforts and um, how people can maybe get involved to help out. Okay, yes. Well, um, we're getting pretty close to having it able to be open to the public. Um, with COVID, we, the Fry Pioneer Cemetery Preservation Committee has not been able to meet recently. But what's really left to do is to put a gate, a service gate on, which we still need funding for, and um, to work with the city to decide on hours of operation when we're gonna be able to open that up to the public and how we're going to secure it at night, things like that. And then besides that, it's mainly general cemetery maintenance. We're gonna work on some educational signage eventually as well, but as far as getting it open, those are the two really big things moving forward. And then um, I know the Sierra Vista Historical Society, um, they're looking for sponsors for their fence panels. And it's $400 to sponsor a panel. And then on a little plaque in the front of the cemetery by the pedestrian gate, all the sponsors will be featured in perpetuity. So those signs will be up there forever saying, you know, your family name or the company name or whoever's sponsoring those panels, you know, thanking them so that people know as they come through. Awesome. And yeah, if you are interested in uh, making a donation or sponsoring a panel, um, you can get in touch with Marta Mesmer, and uh, you, she can be reached at 520-249-5419. Uh, That's 249-5419. Or Marty Jones, uh, who can be reached at 520-249-1079. That's 249-1079. Uh, and talking about the volunteers who helped, uh, those are two very key ones, obviously. Uh, is Marta Nacho's niece or daughter? I couldn't remember She's exactly. She's his daughter, daughter and okay. she and Marty Jones are the uh, co-chairman of the Fry Pioneer 
Cemetery Preservation Committee. Right. And they, them and uh, the president of the Sierra Vista Historical Society, Tim Doyle, have really provided some great leadership throughout this entire uh, preservation effort. And to see what they've been able to do with very little resources and to pull all of this together, to be something that was deserving of statewide recognition. I mean, most of the other people who got awards had huge sponsors and NEH grants, all these things. And this was a very um, grassroots community effort where we had great leadership. We had tremendous volunteers who were out there weekend after weekend after weekend doing everything that needed to be done by hand and, you know, with very little actually hired help. So it was just really tremendous um, effort on all those parts. Well, thank you so much for joining, Elizabeth. It's been awesome talking to you. Um, and maybe we'll do it again sometime soon. All right. Sounds great, Adam. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Well, congratulations, podcast listeners, if you've managed to make it this far in this episode. Uh, this is going to be our regular mailbag segment. Uh, I was really happy to receive several nice emails and comments after our initial pilot episode uh, featuring Police Chief Adam Thrasher. Uh, several people said it was nice to hear how the Sierra Vista Police Department cultivates a culture of service with honor to our community. And one person uh, in particular suggested a future episode highlighting, highlighting uh, SVPD Officer Lori Burdick. Um, she overcame some extraordinary challenges to become the department's first female SWAT operator. And that's definitely a story we want to uh, go into at some point in the future, so maybe it will be on a future podcast. Uh, so for everyone who did submit comments or, or emails, uh, we really do appreciate it. And we hope uh, all our listeners will get involved in the conversation if they'd like to join in. Uh, just to, to join in, email us at pod at sierravistaaz.gov. That's P-O-D at sierravistaaz.gov. And you can get involved and let us know what you think. So that's it for this episode of Let's Talk Sierra Vista. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.